Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chest, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your Chest podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be an informative discussion on the most recent update of the Chest guidelines for antithrombotic therapy and VTE disease. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Lisa Moores as our guest. Dr. Moores and her colleagues wrote um, the new update of the antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease, second update of the CHEST guideline and expert panel report. Dr. Moores is the chair of the CHEST antithrombotics guidelines and is an author on the VTE treatment and VTE and COVID-19 guidelines. Hello, Dr. Winter. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. So, Dr. Morris, I'd like to start by asking, what prompted you to update these guidelines? Have there been major changes in the treatment of VTE disease? A great question. One of the things that we like to do with our entire guideline portfolio at CHEST is to, on a periodic basis, look at them and decide which ones of them may be amenable to an update. We're trying to move towards more of a living guidelines approach so that they always stay relevant. I wouldn't say we're there yet, but at least on a four- or five-year periodic basis, we expect to have enough evidence. We did that with uh, looking at our 2016 publication on VTE therapy and also taking a quick look back at the 2012 publication and thought that there were several guidance statements in those documents in which there was new evidence that would lend themselves to updates and potentially changes in the recommendations. So let's discuss those recommendations. What are the new guidelines for the treatment of acute isolated distal DVT? So this is one that doesn't change much, although I think that the conversation around it was clarified. And the real decision that we have to make is that we have evidence that says that anticoagulation does reduce recurrent VTE in patients with isolated distal DVT. And actually without a significant signal in terms of harm with major bleeding, With that said, we've decided to give a little bit more guidance in that some patients are probably at higher risk for proximal extension of the clot or recurrent VTE than others. And so not necessarily all of them need to be treated. And we broke that down based on several risk factors that folks can see in the manuscript. But if the decision is made not to treat initially, then we do make a strong recommendation that patients should be followed with serial imaging, which would be repeat ultrasound at one week and two weeks to make sure that there is not proximal extension that would then warrant anticoagulation. Now, what are the recommendations for treatment of a subsegmental PE without a proximal DVT? 
So it's interesting that you um, sort of emphasize without a proximal DVT because that was one of the factors that went into our decision-making. If there is a proximal DVT present, of course, then you have an indication for anticoagulation. So all of those patients should be treated. But in those that truly have isolated subsegmental PE, we again listed some risk factors that might help you in deciding which patients are low risk for recurrence and therefore perhaps might not need anticoagulation and could just be watched very carefully versus those that may be high risk for recurrent DTE and then looking at that bleeding risk to help you decide. Both of these recommendations are are based on, they're just suggestions, they're based on fairly low quality evidence because we don't yet have good randomized trials in this setting. And what are the recommendations for treatment of asymptomatic incidentally found PEs? You might think that that would be similar, uh, but the difference here is that asymptomatic or incidentally found isn't necessarily isolated subsegmental, and many of these can be more proximal. It's simply that the study, the diagnostic imaging, was not done out of clinical suspicion for pulmonary embolism. The data that we do have, which, <clears throat> excuse me, which is not a lot, suggests that patients who present asymptomatically have a similar course of disease as those who do have symptoms, and therefore, we are recommending that the treatment be the same, both in terms of the initial agent as well as the duration. And what are the recommendations for acute PEs, both with and without associated hypertension? This is where, Dr. Winter, we probably have the most uh, nuanced recommendations. They are not changed significantly from prior versions of our guidelines. Again, what we have done is, I hope anyway, given better descriptors of these, how these patients present. And in essence, we have very strong agreement among our panel as well as other societies that patients who present with acute PE with sustained prolonged hypotension should receive systemic thrombolytic therapy in the absence of a high bleeding risk. We know that their short-term mortality is high. This still is a weak recommendation because we don't have really strong mortality data in this group. The real difficulty is the patients that present with pulmonary embolism that is not associated with hypotension but may have factors that suggest that their short-term risk may be higher, either the so-called submassive PE or intermediate high-risk PE. And there have been several systematic reviews and meta-analyses trying to tease out which group of these patients is highest risk and therefore should be treated as if they had hypotension versus those that may, uh, may not be quite as high. And we still don't have the best tools to do that. Um, So at the moment, we are still recommending against thrombolytic therapy in patients who do not have hypotension on presentation with the caveat that the patients that do have some of those markers that suggest higher risk, such as um, a, a decrease in their blood pressure that is not yet below a systolic of 90, 
significant tachycardia, markers of RV dysfunction, those patients should probably be put into a monitored setting. And if they do deteriorate, then at that point, we would suggest systematic uh, or systemically administered thrombolytic therapy. And what are the recommendations regarding catheter-directed thrombolysis? This is another area I think that is um, of intense interest, and there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm out there for catheter-directed therapy. Based on the reasonable assumption that catheter-directed approaches uh, require a, a lower dose of thrombolytic therapy uh, um, agent and therefore hopefully um, are associated with lower risks of major bleeding and intracranial bleeding. Unfortunately, both in 2016 and in our current update, we really were unable to find large, high-quality, randomized controlled trials that show this with any degree of uh, certainty. So we are still recommending that patients who are candidates for thrombolytic therapy should receive this uh, through a peripheral vein with systemic or standard uh, systemic doses. This is an area that I think we are all looking for better data and with current larger ongoing trial or randomized trials, as well as now larger registries, this might be something that could be updated more quickly in the future. But, but currently, we are recommending against that as uh, first-line therapy. So moving away from thrombolytics, what are the recommendations regarding IVC filters? This is a recommendation that really didn't change compared to our prior versions as well. We didn't have any new trials to, to say that we should change what we have recommended in the, in the past. And I would just say that we are currently recommending against the use of an IVC filter in addition to anticoagulants and that the patients that do receive filters should really be those that have a true contraindication to anticoagulation. And we base this on the fact that uh, the panel really felt that the IVC filters are, are overused. Um, they do have complications. They, uh, and we, we don't have data to show an improvement in, in mortality. We have several trials that looked at different types of filters and different populations that were hard to combine. So looking at known risks um, and the uncertainty of the benefit, we, we continue to take a very conservative approach. And again, we only recommend them in patients who have a contraindication. We also state that if that contraindication uh, is resolved and anticoagulants are initiated, then the IVC filter should be promptly removed at that point. And what are the recommendations regarding the use of direct-acting oral anticoagulants versus warfarin or low-molecular weight heparin? Based on the several multiple or several randomized controlled trials that have come out in the last decade or so, showing that the direct oral anticoagulants are at least as effective in the prevention of recurrent VTE as the vitamin K antagonists, 
and across the board appear to be associated with a lower risk of major bleeding, at least intracranial hemorrhage. They are recommended as the first-line agent for most patients presenting with acute VTE. And one of the changes in this current edition of the guidelines is that they are now recommended first-line in patients with cancer-associated thrombosis as well. Those were newer trials that were not available in the 2016 uh, publication. We make several comments that, of course, the, the direct oral anticoagulants have not been directly compared to each other, so we really don't favor one over the other. However, they're looking at some of the trials. There does appear to be a, a, a signal that apixaban may be associated with a lower risk of uh, major GI bleeding than the other direct oral anticoagulants, particularly in the setting of cancer-associated thrombosis in patients with luminal uh, GI malignancies. So that is one nuance that you will see in the remarks or, or comments associated with that recommendation. So let's just think the impact. Oh, sorry. I, I, was, I was just going to mention I should probably also point out that there is the only group of patients in which we rec we do not recommend the direct oral anticoagulants is are in patients who have VTE associated with the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Perfect. Thank you for adding that. So mm -hmm. let's discuss something that practitioners are often confused on. What are the recommendations for treatment of superficial venous thromboses? Yes, this is a unique population um, because the setting of the superficial vein thrombosis is is often um, in the a little bit different risk profile, and it happens it often is in patients with chronic venous insufficiency. However, we do know that there are long-term complications of these clots uh, that aren't always just extension to a proximal clot, so the post-thrombotic syndrome and, and worsening of venous insufficiency. And because of that, we suggest anticoagulation for a short period, so 45 days, and we suggest the use of Fondaparinox because that is the agent that has been studied um, with a newer recommendation that if the patient is unable to use uh, or does not want to use parenteral anticoagulation, then rivaroxaban is a reasonable alternative because that also has a small trial showing its efficacy in this population. Let's shift focus from how and talk about how long we should treat VTEs. What are the recommendations regarding the length of treatment? This is another really fun area. I think those of us that practice in the, in the field of venous thromboembolism are fascinated by this. In, in the shift over the last 10 to 20 years of thinking of VTE as a, from a disease-specific perspective that every patient with a DVT or a PE should get a certain period of treatment, to understanding that the, the patients are very heterogeneous um, and their risk of recurrence varies based on multiple factors at the time of their presentation, such as the type of clot or the proximity of clot, whether it's a DVT or a PE, as well as things such as gender, um, the things that 
You can measure after three months of treatment, such as a D-dimer or residual vein thrombosis. Uh, unfortunately, we, we, we don't have a great way to really figure out what the risk of recurrence versus the risk of bleeding is in these patients, um, not just yet. So we tend to take an approach of what is the provoking factor. So all patients presenting with acute VTE should get three months of anticoagulant therapy. And then at that three-month period, they should be evaluated for whether they are a candidate for extended phase therapy. The current recommendations that we have put forth in this version of the guideline say that if the provoking factor was a strong transient factor, with the most common one being uh, in the setting of surgery or trauma, then patients should get just those three months. If they have, at the other extreme, this is a recurrent, unprovoked event, they've clearly declared themselves as higher risk and they should be offered extended therapy. In between that is the patients with the first unprovoked event, and currently we do still recommend that they be considered for extended therapy. And then patients that present with a minor transient risk factor, um, such as uh, hormonal therapy or um, long-haul travel, things that we would say, yes, those are provoking factors, but they're not strong ones, so is there something else about this patient? I, I think that the tendency might be to say, I'm, I'm not sure and I might want to offer them more treatment or extended therapy. But we in this, in this uh, the panel voted to, to recommend against that just because of the uncertainty of the benefit in that group and the known risk of bleeding associated with the extended treatment. One really important point is that if we do offer extended treatment, that's not a defined period. It doesn't necessarily mean lifelong, and it really takes uh, a reevaluation either on a six-month or a yearly basis when you're seeing the patient to see if anything in their risk profile in terms of recurrence or in terms of bleeding associated with anticoagulation may have changed. And some of this is driven by the fact that when we look at trials of extended therapy, they really only go out to two or four years. So to be able to say what happens after that, we, we really don't know. So what are the major changes in these guidelines from the prior ones? There are a few new questions that we asked. And there are a few changes to the direction of a recommendation, such as the one I just mentioned. But most of what is uh, different in these guidelines is either the certainty of the evidence, so we were able to increase the strength of a recommendation because the signal was more consistent and more precise, but the part, the, the biggest change from my perspective that I'm very proud of is the reorganization of the guideline to really follow the process of care from the time of presentation, the question, should I treat this patient? What other interventional or additional treatments do I need to consider as they present? What agent do I use as I start their, tre their uh, uh, treatment? 
what agent do I use for what's called the treatment phase, so those three months of, of therapy, and then the decision that, that we just discussed. Should I offer extended therapy, and what complications long-term do I need to look for? So it really follows, I think it's intuitive for clinicians, rather than in some of our prior versions where the organization of the manuscript seemed to follow more just the organization of the PICO questions we asked, and they, they tended to kind of jump around, and it was more difficult to find the answer to the specific question you were asking. I think this version does that much more nicely. The other thing that uh, we've done is to put it, uh, reference, you know, how is this the same or different than prior versions of our own guidelines? And then importantly, what do other guidelines from our sister societies say? And, and how do those, um, are those similar to, to our guidelines or if they're different, how can we put that into context? So looking forward to the next update of these guidelines, what are the next steps for research in BTE disease? Really hoping we're going to have some more information in some of these controversial areas that, that I mentioned. So although we didn't have necessarily controversy in the guidance statements that we made, it was really because we still need more data. So one big question that is still out there is how do we treat patients with submassive but what the Europeans would call intermediate high risk, so the patients that have signs of RV dysfunction, that have us very concerned about their short-term outcomes, can we get to a point where we can identify a group that would benefit from more aggressive treatment up front? That's a big question, and, and we've got some trials going on that. And then importantly, what is that more aggressive treatment? With the big areas of interest being... And we use a lower dose of peripherally, so through a peripheral catheter, uh, systemic thrombolysis so that we would see more benefit uh, without quite such a high risk of bleeding, which patients might benefit from the catheter-directed approaches, and we've got on, ongoing trials there. And then as we talked about, can we, can we uh, get a better sense for which patients are at highest risk of recurrent VTE and are the ones that should be offered extended therapy? Can we get more precise with that determination? Those, to me, are, are areas that we're all still looking for answers in. So as we finish up our discussion, can you please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this podcast and these guidelines? I'm hoping that they can see this as a practical, useful guide, a very quick reference. What you'll see in the journal is really the bottom line. What is your question at what point in patient care and what should you do? And any major considerations as to why we made that recommendation or that guidance statement. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is... I remember back to the 2012 guidelines, which I was involved with and I was very proud of, but many of us sort of called it the Bible when it showed up in the mail and the print version. It was its own version of the journal. It was huge. 
think it was 900 pages. I, it was very difficult to navigate and find the answer to the specific question that you had. And I feel that this is a significant step in the right direction towards allowing practitioners to get the answer quickly and to be able to have a good discussion with the patient and engage in shared decision-making when there are nuances to the decision being made. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Morris for a great discussion, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time. <laughs>